Coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fourth Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. All right, and a happy Thursday to you. Thank you for listening to The Ron Show, whether it's on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. A reminder, starting Monday, the show begins in the 9 a.m. hour. We will air first in the 9 a.m. hour. We will repeat 5 to 6 p.m. So you can still hear it when you hear it on America One Radio or the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, if you listen 5 to 6 p.m. But you're going to miss out on the newness of it if you don't catch it at 9 a.m. And I may freshen the show up a little bit throughout the day. But I got bills to pay and other things to do, you know, the job and whatnot, residential real estate, et cetera, and so on. And so that's why we're kind of making this change so that I can adapt my schedule a little bit to, I don't know, making some money and paying my bills, the adult sort of stuff, and uh, still maintain doing this show. I'm so grateful that I had the opportunity to talk with this young lady again. She is Alex Joseph. Right here in Atlanta, former federal prosecutor, also uh, a foster mom, and I did not know this, when did you join the uh, NAMI board? And for those who don't know, let's explain what NAMI is, too. That is the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Alex, thanks for joining us. Yep. Hello. Welcome. I'm happy to be back. So talk to me a little bit about uh, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. That's a new twist for you. Oh, yeah. So I used to run the largest mental health court in the country, a rural mental health court in the country as a prosecutor. And part of, you know, realizing that the criminal legal system was really broken beyond repair Mm. was instead of running a mental health court, I ran for the board. I was chosen for the board of NAMI Georgia, which does mental health advocacy. So it's just one of my passions. That's to- by the way. Do you know Dom Kelly? Do you do you guys interact? Of course, yeah. yeah. Dom's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, he's been fantastic to have on the show, and he's uh, somebody that I like talking to when uh, when it's time to advocate for those who are uh, you know do- dealing with mental or, or physical um, challenges while being incarcerated. He, he really opened my eyes to a lot of stuff there. So uh, I wanted to have you on because we have not had a, a get together in a while to discuss uh, the many things going on with the struggle uh, for the Atlanta Public Safety Training Facility a.k.a. Cop City and those who are opposed to building it. There have been uh, precious little movements, judicially speaking, but the activism continues on and the uh, demonization of the activism continues as well. Right. I mean, really where we stand, if you take a bird's eye perspective, is there was a lot of activism against Cop City at the beginning, meaning people that were using their bodies, their voices to protest the facility. And at the beginning, a lot of politicians, public officials came out and they said, you know, this is this is an activism. This is protest. This is riots. This is terrorism. Mm. And so we a little bit called their bluff and we used the democratic system. We pushed for a referendum. We gathered over 100,000 signatures to put this on the ballot, to be heard through the traditional democratic channels, which is what they told us they wanted. And then City Hall has uh, railroaded us, has stopped us at every turn. They refuse to count our signatures. They refuse to put it on the ballot. Um, And so we're now at a standstill, not because we haven't asked for our voices to be heard, but because our elected officials won't let us vote on this. And so here we are once again with activism rearing its head, people that are using their bodies and their voices to protest this facility in part because they now know without a shadow of a doubt that the democratic system just isn't going to work to stop this unwanted, unpopular facility. 
I was watching a video recently produced by the folks at the Atlanta Community Press Collective where uh, a young lady, uh, an activist, she said, I would rather be at City Hall dealing with this. If going to City Hall worked, I would be at City Hall right now. But they've shown us it doesn't work. So I'm not there. Uh, did, did you see this video as well? That really struck me just, just hearing her say that. Yeah, I will say that, um, you know, obviously this is radio, people can't see me, but I am like a short 30-something white woman who grew up in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. I'm connected. I did Lead Atlanta, which is like a young professional program. And honestly, I was a mean girl in high school. Like throughout my life, I've sort of gotten what I wanted and had very few obstacles. And this is the first time, the Stop Cop City movement, where I have really become fully disillusioned with our traditional systems of power, these systems that I truly my whole life I felt have worked for me and where I've been heard. And when we came up with and, you know, a group of volunteers came up with this idea of a referendum, we looked at the law, we saw that we could place this on the ballot if we got enough signatures, which was no easy feat. And to fill boxes and boxes with lawfully gathered signatures and have them gather dust and be ignored by their constituents, mm -hmm. it, it is something I've never seen in my life. And what I also want people to sort of contemplate is there's been a lot of talk of did we get enough signatures are there enough valid signatures even if we fell f short right so even if there's 50,000 valid signatures instead of the 60,000 that are required mm -hmm. that's 50,000 Atlanta residents whose voices are being ignored and our elected officials seem perfectly content with that there's been no attempt to address the substantial uh you know dissent of the project there's been no attempt to address anyone that any opposition and i'm just so shocked by that there's been no proposals to make the facility smaller to relocate it and and i just would have expected some sort of compromise this is the thing that gets me and i, I point to this all the time anytime this conversation comes up fulton county wants to build something as well their cost is around 15 million dollars uh, Atlanta is mostly in Fulton County, so Atlanta and Fulton County share a good bit of space, and there's a good bit of space in and around Fulton County, and I don't understand why that solution never came up on anyone else's radar to say, maybe Atlanta and Fulton County should collaborate on something like this at uh, a higher cost than what Fulton County wants to spend, but a much lower cost. And here's an idea, maybe somewhere that isn't uh, environmentally impactful and environmentally impactful, uh, surrounded by neighborhoods uh, and neighbors of color. Just put it, I, I put that out there for months and I don't understand why... I'm the only one that's thinking that. I, I can't be I the only one that's thinking that. It is a real head scratcher of a project because part of it, it's being built in an area that floods substantially. So, I mean, they're going to have to deal with flooding from the South River. We just saw that um, weeks ago. And then there's a community of people directly surrounding the facility that don't want the facility, mm. which means that the police officers that are training there are going to have to deal with opposition every say, single day of their training. Um, and, you know, they're creating unsafe conditions for the officers that they purport to care about. And we know there's going to be ongoing destruction of property and equipment as long as this facility stays open. And so to me, it seems like a real choice from the politicians to, you know, 
put down, you know, a flag in the sand. And I don't know what point they think they're proving by building an unpopular project that is causing environmental devastation, um, especially when there's other training facilities, other departments that need training. And from the beginning, I've always pointed out that Georgia has a giant statewide training facility for all law enforcement officers in Forsyth, Georgia, which is mm. a little bit over an hour outside of Atlanta. And, and I am in favor of statewide standards. I mean, why are we only focusing on training Atlanta Police Department? I don't just drive and interact in Atlanta. Um, and I, I've never gotten a real answer from why we're turning away from statewide training one statewide facility. Well, the, the the pivot is that this isn't just a police training facility, that it's also going to be used for first responders and emergency, other emergency personnel, the fire department, et cetera, and so on. Right. And my understanding, having read reporting from um, the Atlanta Community Press Collective, is that the first responder training, the firefighters, other first responders, other than police officers, that those facilities are part of stage two of the facility. Ah. So those will not, those are not being constructed now. They're not going to be operational now. I don't even think they're included in the budget numbers that we've been talking about. And so I really deeply love firefighters. I did a fire uh, truck ride along semi recently. I think the firefighters are wonderful and deeply underserved by our city. And so to me, they are using the popularity of firefighters to, you know, gild the lily. But I I don't think that it's true that this facility is really going to serve anyone other than police officers. That's an interesting take. We're with Alex Joseph. She is uh, one of the uh, senior uh, legal advisors with the uh, Vote Cop City Movement. I guess I can still cite you as that, right? Uh, You can. Okay, good deal. You mentioned earlier that there's going to be continued protesting that involves destruction of property, et cetera, and so on. And I know that's not something that you're necessarily advocating or, or, or citing with, with that movement. It just seems to be a reality. But there is even pushback from those, I, I'll cite myself as one of them, who support the cause and the movement but can't abide by destruction of property. Would you speak to that? And, and listen, don't worry about hurting my feelings. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that I am what I would say is like a typical Atlantan, right, which is I for months and years was sort of not interested in the Stop Cop City movement because I viewed it as too radical. Mm -hmm. I got involved because I felt like I couldn't sit silent anymore. And when I got involved, it was in a very mainstream way, right? I was involved in the referendum. And I will say my views have substantially changed on this. Maybe not your views, but my views have changed because it is something It does change you when you attend these council meetings, you look your elected officials in the eyes, you spend all summer, the hottest months of the year, gathering hundreds and hundreds of signatures right. for them to ignore the democratic process, right? And really kind of to lie in the process too, right? To say, oh, well, this lease can't be broken when this four-page lease between the city and the Atlanta Police Foundation clearly states that it can be broken at any time with no penalties. And so I don't personally view myself as someone who's likely to chain themselves to construction equipment in the near future, but I certainly understand the anger. And what I would ask everyone listening is, you know, is there nothing that you think in your personal lives is worth getting arrested over is worth protesting? So maybe this isn't your cause, Mm. but there is certainly something inside of you that is worth fighting for. And so this is the cause for a lot of young Atlantans and a lot of young environmentalists. And I would listen to those voices because I think that those voices are people that are deeply worried about our future and the future earth that our kids are going to inherit. 
again, I, I understand that, and 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 there's no question that from a, a media perspective, uh, again, knowing that the the largest voice media wise in this city is owned by Cox Communications, whether it's Channel 2, whether it's their 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 radio holdings, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and that Cox Media... Well, actually, they may not all be... But anyway, Cox Media is one of the principal... In fact, I believe the largest funder of the uh, Atlanta Police Foundation. I do get that. It, I, I guess what I'm asking is the destruction of property. Chaining yourself to equipment's one thing, but burning equipment owned by privately owned construction companies, it, it does give, do you, do you understand where that might actually create some issue, uh, I guess, when it comes to uh, owning the narrative a little bit or, or winning over public sentiment? Oh, absolutely. I understand why public sentiment may question the destruction of property. And I think at one point, months ago, years ago, I myself questioned that. Okay. But now having been deep in the movement, having put on suits and gone to City Hall and done the polite white girl thing and really got a no response, I will say <laughs> I certainly have anger deep inside of me. Um, and also, I will say that two things are happening here that have to be acknowledged. One is, we have all said out loud, we have had the longest public comment at City Hall ever yep. in the history of Atlanta. We said this is an unpopular project and they are ignoring us. In the same way, if you're raising kids and your kids keep reaching for the cookies, you move the cookies, right? Like, why are we building this unpopular project in an unpopular place? Right. Two, a little bit of the promise of the facility and of the fact that Atlanta police currently receive over 40% of the Atlanta budget is that they make us safer, right? And to me, it is telling that they have been unable to prevent any of this destruction of property, right? And so to me, this is really showing that the destruction of property is not turning me off from the cop city movement. It is showing me that this is an unpopular project and they have, they meaning the city has refused to listen to our voices about that. And that the cops, in fact, cannot prevent crimes, no matter how well-funded they are. And so I think that if they had listened to us, the destruction of property would have stopped, and they really just refused to do so. And I also say it is state violence to destroy the largest force in the Atlanta area. It is state violence to ruin uh, black homeowners' property values with mm. the creation of this facility that's going to have nonstop noise pollution. And so I just think we should look at how we define violence. We're with Alex Joseph. She's one of the uh, senior legal advisors with the Stop Cop City Movement. We're going to catch up with her after a quick break and continue this conversation on The Ron Show, the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, or wherever you podcast. We're back on The Ron Show. Back with Alex Joseph for a little catch-up on the Cop City conversation. We haven't done this in a while, and I want to thank you for joining me uh, here on the fly. So uh, one of the ways that folks who feel like they're not being heard, and I do understand that frustration completely, is to take the fight to the ballot box. And I know that the ballot initiative, the referendum initiative has been stalled by city hall and we're still waiting on word on that. I mean, the goal was to try and get this on the ballot by March. Obviously that's not going to happen. And at this rate, I, I, November's even a question mark. And by then there are estimates that the facility could be sev upwards of 75% or better completed by then. So my next question is if the referendum can't be put on the ballot, can there be an alternate slate of candidates that can take out those uh, in City Hall, those on City Council, maybe even the mayor, that can create some repercussion for those politicians who have voted for this facility, despite the overwhelming uh, backlash on it? 
Yes, that's a great question. And I'm really excited that you asked it because there's actually a really helpful historical example. So when people talk to me about the Stop Cop City movement and particularly that it's violent and it involves the destruction of property. One of the things that I like to talk about is the roadblock movement, uh, the stop the road movement. So this was a movement to stop the expansion of a highway that would have run straight through Decatur. Um, and it was, it, it was coming to existence in part because of the Carter center. So the idea would there be this huge highway and in part it went to the, hi- it went to the Carter center. And actually the road in front of the Carter center is all that remains of this project because the road warriors, the block the road movement was successful. And there were many different divisions within that movement. So some people, you know, uh, called their politicians, some people destroyed uh, equipment. Um, They went so far as to at night, they would dress in all black and they would spray paint over all of the windows of the equipment so that they, they couldn't be used. They wow. would spray paint the signs. And I'd like to point out that Senator John Ossoff's dad was involved in that movement. So, that? you know, yesterday's radicals are today's senators, right? Yeah. yeah. And how what happened was when the roadblock movement in Atlanta started, they were fringe, they were laughed at. And then one election cycle later, you could not get elected in the city of Atlanta if you were not in favor of stopping the road. And so what I think we're going to see is we're going to see at least one or two, maybe three city council members lose their seats because of their position on Stop Cop City. And what I want people to know is that the lease between the city and the Atlanta Police Foundation is just that. It is a lease. It can be broken at any time, which means the referendum can go on the ballot at any time. And I really urge people to take that to heart because the lease, as long as it continues, is a recommitment to over-policing in our city. And that's just not how I want our money to be spent. And yes, we are spending all of this money to build the facility, but I like to believe that it can be turned into a community center. And, and I understand I've you know, seen enough pictures. I know that this is a police training facility, but I think throw a pool in there, put some monkey bars in there. Right, yeah. And yeah, and the people that live in the community, what they want when they are asked, I'm talking about people where this is in their backyard, they wanted a community center. I mean, yep. they're fine with some of it remaining a forest, but they certainly want usable parks, usable paths, a pool for their kids, some tennis courts. And so I think that that's what this could become. And so I don't think the referendum fight is over. I don't think that canceling the lease is over. And mm-hmm. I certainly think there's going to be political ramifications. And we know that because that's exactly what happened in the roadblock movement. Okay, uh, so we know that the budget has grown, but let me ask you this: Are there? You, you spoke about how uh, none of the can, none of the politicians or those who are pushing for this, the APF, have listened to concerns of those who have pushed back. Have there been any changes or modifications made to the Atlanta Public Safety Training Facility that have met with approval from those who are seeking to stop it altogether? I mean, I haven't. So, first of all, the. Stop Cop City Coalition says no cop city anywhere, anytime. So we're not looking for compromises. Right. But I haven't even seen any put forward. And in fact, there has been lying from the city who initially said that no other sites had even been looked at. And then through a open records request, it came out that in fact, three other sites have been seriously considered. So I think there's been an attempt to uh, suggest that it's 
you know, my way or the highway, this is the only facility and mm. it's going to be this big and it's going to be this expensive. And I do want to just remind your listeners how big and how expensive this facility is. So this is an 80 acre facility that is three times the size of the facility where NYPD and the LAPD train, right? They train on facilities that are 20, 25 acres respectively. And mm. so this is the largest police training facility for a single police force in the entire country. Uh, it, it, does that size have anything to do with any of the environmental buffer that had been promised to keep neighbors safe from, I don't know, random gunfire at a shooting range or smoke from a fire uh, no, tower? My understanding is that the 80 acres is the facility itself. There is the actual lease is for more land and then that additional land is the buffer. So it's the 80 acres is the actual facility. Fair enough. Alex Joseph, thanks for giving us a checkup on the uh, Cop City movement and where it stands at this point as construction continues unabated right now with referendum signatures still sitting in boxes in City Hall while we wait to find out if we ever get to put a vote on that. I thank you so much for the time and for joining the Ron Show today. Thank you. Have a great day. In a not at all unrelated note, just saw this headline across the X platform, the Atlanta Community Press Collective reporting that a new Georgia cash bail expansion will criminalize charitable bail funds. You know, like the Atlanta Solidarity Fund that was fundraising for Cop City protesters, the Solidarity Fund that was raided by cops and three arrests were made. Just a coincidence, I'm sure. We'll touch on that more tomorrow with Matt Scott from the Atlanta Community Press Collective. Back after this. This is The Ron Show on America One Radio. So, today we learned that Governor Brian Kemp, who, it's no secret, is going to run, likely for a U.S. Senate seat, the one that John Ossoff currently occupies in 2026. And so, because it's no secret that that's what Brian Kemp has his eyes on, Brian Kemp has his eyes on some national spotlight and grandstanding because that is exactly what the GOP loves to do. I've said this so many times, not just over the course of the 15 or so months that I've been doing this show, but in particular the last few weeks, when it comes to issues like immigration or dealing with homelessness, the GOP likes to put up window dressing, blinders, blockers, make sure I can't see this, get this out of my sight, and then they, they feel better. They know that their base feels better because they think the problem has gone away instead of dealing with root causation. Where am I going with this, you ask? Ron, where are you going with this? Today, uh, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution reporting, Greg Bluestein at the AJC, that Brian Kemp's going to head to the Texas-Mexican border to back... Texas Governor Greg Abbott and Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick and the rest of the Texas GOP that is doing absolutely nothing to help solve the immigration crisis, but loves making sure that the problem persists. Oh, by the way, there is an immigration bill that the House of Representatives could vote on if House Speaker Mike Johnson put it to a vote, but he won't because he knows it'll pass, that the U.S. Senate in bipartisan fashion, put together that President Joe Biden said he would sign to toughen security at the Texas-Mexican border, the entire U.S.-Mexican border. But, ooh, can't solve this problem or come up with some tangible solutions to this issue in the heat of an election year 
when Mr. Build the Wall in Mexico will pay for it, needs that issue again to be a problem. Here's the confounding part for me. MAGA fanatic, Trump acolyte, gonna vote for Trump voter. He said he was going to fix this the first time he ran for office, and he clearly didn't. So (laughs) this is like realizing your boat has sprung a leak, right? And you put your finger where you see the leak, and you hold on to it. Well, how long can you keep your finger on the leak? Donald Trump can keep his finger on the leak for four years, maybe. But when he goes away and takes the finger off the leak, the leak's still there, right? Quick story. I, for those who don't know, used to work in radio broadcasting. Did it for about 28 years, all told, from high school uh, through 2019. And I remember there was one morning in particular where my co-host and I, her name is Mackenzie, she and I still stay in touch, by the way. Uh, she and I were on the air, and suddenly we weren't. And we didn't know why. And back then, this was the mid to late 90s, I knew just enough about audio engineering and the equipment in the studio to know enough to be dangerous. And I knew, because I, I saw the flashing light, I saw what the problem was. I knew what the problem was. So I went over there, and I pushed the button. And briefly, the station went back on the air. And then it went off again. So I turn around, I push the button again. Station stayed on the air. Five seconds later, off again. I'm like, so I go over there and I hold the button and just, just hold it in place. And wouldn't you know the station stayed on the air the entire time I kept my finger on that button? The second I take it off, one, two, three, boom, problem again. So in my infinite wisdom, and being the top 40 uh, morning shock jock that I was, and I really wasn't all that shocking, uh, I said to my co-host, I said, well, why don't you take your stool over there and sit next to the button and just lean against it or prop up again, you know, just to keep us on the air because we got to play the hits. Got to sling the hits, everybody. Got to hear Matchbox 20 on Y105. <laughs> I never talked like that, by the way. I don't think I did. Uh, so she thinking it was cute and giggly and funny. Yeah. She's like, yeah, let's do that. That's funny. Ha ha. And we literally told our audience, the only reason you hear us going on and off the air is because there's this one button that won't just stay mashed in, pressed in where it needs to be. And so (laughs) that's why we're on the air again. You hear us going on and off and well, here's why. And we've affixed it. And that's because McKenzie is leaning against the button to make sure that we stay on the air. Well, here's the problem. Our engineer, good old Earl Welch, I believe, heard us having this conversation on the air. He knew what the problem was, and the problem wasn't just a button that wasn't going to stay pressed. He knew what the problem was, and it was a bigger problem that needed a qualified engineer to come in and address. And it meant, much to the chagrin of this radio personality who loved his ratings, it meant going off the air. It meant we may have to divert ourselves to another studio to bypass that piece of equipment in order for it to be fixed. So I guess my point here is walls and uh, even hedonistic, and, and make no mistake, it's, it's just it's satanic to lace 
waters that people are crossing with barbed wire. You f***ing assholes. Aren't permanent solutions to a larger problem. They're temporary fixes. Just like seeing to it that you erect these barriers or put, I use this in quotation marks, artful spikes on sidewalks and shoulders under overpasses or creating arm rests on park benches to keep the unhoused from sleeping where you can see them doesn't solve homelessness. But those are the simple lipstick on a pig facade-like solutions, I use that term loosely, that the GOP offers instead of substantive policy. Now listen, I am a progressive liberal. I happen to think that just getting tough at the border, which is what the president is now espousing. And listen, this is political. It's a game of chess. I don't think he's really all about it, but he knows in order for the Republicans to budge at all when it comes to things that he does need, funding for Ukrainian military needs, for example, Israel uh, needs military funds as well, that he's got to give a little. It's politics. That's the way it works in Washington. You have to compromise a little bit. Republicans don't compromise. So instead, in this election cycle, well, not just this election cycle, many elections and cycles, the GOP would rather politicize a human problem with xenophobic, even white nationalist ideas. Seriously? Barbed wire in the f***ing water? Blocking federal border patrol agents from rescuing people who are drowning in the water instead letting them die? That's your solution? What a batch of assholes. And not at all Christian, by the way. I can sit here and cite Bible verses. But that doesn't matter. There's the, the, the indignant uh, nature of, of this batch of Americans is repugnant. They are irredeemable, irreproachable. Hillary Clinton... Wasn't always right, but boy, was she right about the basket of deplorables. Anyway, I went off on this tangent, and I hadn't even gotten to the article yet. Governor Brian Kemp, reading from Greg Bluestein's article, will join a contingent of Republican officials at the U.S. border this weekend to back Texas Governor Greg Abbott's standoff with President Joe Biden over immigration policies. Kemp is one of 15 GOP governors headed to Shelby Park in Eagle Pass. I'm sure he'll be allowed to be there. I wonder if, if Governor Kemp is there and he sees somebody drowning in the water and could help him, would he do that? And if he rushed to the water to aid somebody from drowning, would the Texas Marshals under Governor Abbott's charge stop them from doing that? Anyway, Texas officials have put up a system of uh, concertina wire along the Rio Grande barbed wire to prevent migrants from legally illegally crossing into the U.S. The U.S. Supreme Court sided with the Biden administration last week by allowing U.S. Border Patrol agents to cut or remove parts of the barrier. Abbott ordered officials to continue to roll out the wire despite the court's 5-4 decision, saying Texas had a right to prevent what he called an, air quote, invasion of migrants. 
More on the article here. Kemp's visit to the border comes amid a growing political battle over immigration in an election year where the issue has already emerged as a pressing priority for many voters. And by the way, can I just tell you that I, I get an email every morning from the New York Times. It's called The Morning. Got an email uh, from The Morning. And uh, David Leonard wrote a fantastic piece that covers, and I think in a very fair manner, Republicans might be shocked, uh, that sort of spelled out where Biden has gone wrong when it comes to immigration, where, where he's tried to do right, where his heart has led him to try and do right from a humanitarian standpoint, but where policy has fallen short. I thought it was a very fair uh, letter. In fact, I think I can share it as a link, and I'll try and do that in the show notes at ronshoytl.com. He covers it from a Mexican point of view, where he talks about how Mexico has actually toughened their stance on immigrants passing through their country on the way to the United States, and how it actually has throttled back the amount of people that have made it to our southern border as a result. By and large, what what happens is cyclical, okay? <clears throat> when a Republican, when a Donald Trump, a, a, a xenophobic white nationalist, you know, blowhard tries to win his way back to the White House, when when someone like that enters the White House, it, it is a it is a message that is sent to those who wish to come here. I'm going to make your life so miserable that you won't want to come here. And it does have a effect. I can't quarrel with that. International law be damned. And then when a Joe Biden takes office and says, well, you know, we, we've got to do this from a, a legal perspective, international law we have to adhere to. Also, human dignity our Judeo-Christian values. Ironic, right? That, that I even have to mention Judeo-Christian values when it comes to dealing with the plight of the migrant. That he's taken a more liberal policy with asylum seekers, etc. and so on. Uh, again, all of this in the letter, and I, again, I thought was fairly well reported, balanced, in the New York, from the New York Times today. Again, I'm going to try and put that in the show notes at ronshoetl.com today. But I've said this before and I'll say it again. For one thing, there is root causation that needs to be dealt with. A lot of it, and I'm not saying all of it or the majority or even half, I'm saying a lot of it, and I would argue probably a majority, of root causation that has folks fleeing their home countries, places that they would rather be, all things being equal, if living there were tenable, a lot of these issues stem from destabilized economies, destabilized government, the drug trade, drug cartels, running roughshod over local police and communities. And we have our fingerprints on a lot of that, not just as U.S. citizens or, or, or the fact that we haven't been able to tackle our own drug abuse issues here. Universal healthcare would help with that. But also because we have involved ourselves militarily on a number of occasions and even still try to diplomatically involve ourselves even when we're not in power. 
there is a former Trump cabinet official who had been meddling with Guatemala's presidential election and tried to aid a subversion of his being inaugurated. That's not the 1950s, y'all. That is last month. And he's not even an official with the U.S. government. Dealing with that, understanding our role in some of the destabilization and investing in the restabilization is a tangible solution. I mean, it's not a wall. <laughs> it's not evil. It's not barbed wire. It's not people bleeding and gash, you know, getting gashes in the Rio Grande and or, or, or drowning like the, the mother with the two kids did. That seems to be what the GOP, the party that professes to have their Christian values coursing through their veins, that's what they espouse. Dealing with the issues, that the root causation that send people here. Ugh, too complex. Can't fit it on a bumper sticker. Why would we touch that? Ugh. And I, as I pointed out here a week or two ago, the Biden administration is actually working on that. There is a policy plan that has been rolled out since February 2021 to deal with root causation. The problem is politicians can't grandstand in front of wonky policy and diplomacy in other countries. Just isn't flashy enough. Doesn't put money in the coffers. So the Greg Abbotts, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the Ron DeSantis's, and you can even add the Governor Brian Kemp's of the world, pander to the Great Replacement Theory. As much as Brian Kemp wants to pretend that he's not MAGA-like or Tucker Carlson-esque, he's heading to the border. Back after this. Welcome back to The Ron Show, final segment for the day. Do you hear the disappointment in my voice? I just get so disappointed sometimes when people who I have admired or enjoyed their, I don't know, entertainment or athletic prowess say or do something that just utterly disappoints. (laughs) When I was a kid, I was obviously a closet case, but I think, I don't know how old I was when I realized that I, I really liked handsome people, right? I liked handsome guys. Uh, I, I watched the Dukes of Hazard. I love the Dukes of Hazard. And when I used to ride around on my bike, I used to pretend, uh, pretend that you know my bike was the General Lee, and we'd do stunts. My my buddy Jeremy and I, we'd jump over creeks and uh, the retention pond woods behind the house. And so it was a good time. But I actually really had a thing for Bo Duke. <laughs> if I'm being honest, I had a thing for Bo Duke. Actor John Schneider, who by the way I've met, very nice guy. He had volunteered for many years, may still be involved with the Children's Miracle Network, and I was there for uh, live, was it live or just taping of the Children's Miracle Network telethon. Uh, I was involved with a local CMN affiliate back in Louisiana when I worked in radio there. Super nice guy. And dude still looked fantastic in his 50s back then. Still doesn't look all that bad now. Like, I mean... I'm not saying I wouldn't take a ride in the General Lee. Uh, Anyway, John Schneider is MAGA. 
Howell. Kelsey Grammer, love Frasier. Like, Frasier was one of my, like, top five ever sitcoms. Love Frasier. Kelsey Grammer, <sighs> endorsing Donald Trump again. Conservative. I, I, I don't know. And then David Pollock. You know, I'm a huge Georgia Bulldog fan. David Pollock is a damn good dog. But today, his tweet. Like, where the hell did this come from? What is this all about, dude? In wokeness. Wokeism, he tweets, is a demonic ideology intended to replace God's truth with the lies of this world. Wokeness ends through a great awakening. And then he leaves it with the tweet, the quote, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. I'm guessing David Pollock thinks Jesus looks like that missing member of the Doobie Brothers and not the Middle Eastern, Arab, brown-skinned, dark, curly-haired man that Jesus likely was. And that, to me, is kind of a problem. And maybe it's not my place to say, whatever, I'm going to say it. I grew up in a Baptist church, okay? I, I get to talk. I, I have some background. <laughs> I grew up amongst suburban, mostly white, evangelical types. I, 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 I've read the Bible plenty. Attended many Sunday schools. Jesus was the most woke individual to walk the planet back then. And, and maybe ever. And yet, guy who got famous playing a sport, made some money playing a sport, made a lot more money just talking about playing the sport, is concerned about wokeness. And by the way, he lost his job with ESPN, but he didn't lose it to a person of color. So where is this coming from? Y'all, I'm a white man, okay? I, I readily admit that my being a white man has garnered me certain privileges that folks who aren't white and women who are neither white men or men don't enjoy. I'm also a gay man, though. And I understand that there are even more privileges that a white heterosexual man has enjoyed over time that I didn't. Or let me put it this way. There were certain things that I had to deal with that a straight white man never had to. It's just an acceptance of fact. So I'll never understand why those who have enjoyed all the privileges that come with not having any sort of marginalization to them freak out when the efforts to end the marginalization are pursued. Why? Is it because you benefited and now you don't like the fact that you won't? Speaking of Frazier, it reminds me of that episode where he and Niles were going to the spa and they realized that they had gold status and then they saw that there was a diamond status and they wanted diamond status and they hemmed and hawed about it until they finally got somebody to weasel them into diamond status and then they found out that there was a platinum status and they were just completely aghast that they weren't offered platinum status, got platinum status, and they saw that there was another door that they couldn't go through and they were aghast about that and so they just kind of wobbled their cucumber-faced wrapped bodies over to that door and pushed their way out out of the building to the back alley where the garbage was. 
Why can't you be happy you have it so good? And champion the ability for others to have it as good as well. I'll never understand. That's going to do it for The Ron Show. Back here tomorrow, 5 to 6 p.m. on the American One Radio app, AmericanOneRadio.com, wherever you podcast. Show notes at ronshowatl.com. And beginning Monday, the show airs first, 9 to 10 on American One Radio. Have a good one. See you.